0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Uh, I want to start today just by making a quick note about um, the news from this week of ESPN's President John Skipper resigning. Uh, this was a shock to all of us. And I don't know anything other than what's out there in the press. Um his acknowledgement of a of a substance abuse problem and his desire to work on himself and, and to leave the position to do so. I, I don't have any other information as of now. But I just wanted to say that um I'm really sad to hear that he's that he's leaving. And while there's been a lot of criticism of ESPN as a company and some of the choices that he's made, I think people are very short-sighted about the industry that we're in, the changing industry. I think as the big dog and as the the company everybody is looking up to, and sort of uh, the the change maker and leader and on the forefront of of the sports industry, it's easy to see what goes wrong or or when firings happen or when things change at our company and not recognize that the very same things are happening elsewhere. You know, cord cutting is causing subscriptions to go down at other places and there's layoffs all over the industry, newspapers, websites, television channels. It's not just that ESPN. So uh, those are easy things to focus on if you want to be negative and if you want to try to, you know, predict the demise of what is still a billion and billion and billion dollar company. Um, but what I look at is, his incredible commitment to diversity and inclusion at ESPN. Um, what a great and diverse cast of people are on the air and writing and on the radio and talking and um, what a change it is, even from five, six years ago. Um, the number of colleagues that I think are some of the best in the business that are women and people of color and LGBTQ people. Uh, I feel incredibly lucky to work somewhere that cares about that. And I literally was just talking to my husband about how I felt like the company was in a great place after our big meeting and that I was so thankful that he was at the helm and had just re-signed for another couple years because I feel like he cares about those things. And for someone who is a woman or a person of color or LGBTQ or someone who is often uh, excluded or has in the past been excluded from conversations or from um, radio shows or content because uh, of, of things that are said or implied – it felt like it was good to be led by someone who, you know, wanted to head the company in the right direction. So I don't know what happens next from here, but, um, I felt very lucky to work with him and I'm sad to see him go. Uh, that being said, this is a very happy and positive and hopeful episode because, My new co-host, Jason Fitz, is on the pod, and I've hosted with him a couple times. We've hung out in Nashville. You know, we've spent some time together, but I don't know him that well. He just got into the sports scene a couple years ago, and so I wanted to have him on the pod so that you guys could get a feel for his background and that I could kind of have a, have a Q&A and see and see what I'm getting myself into with this Spain and Pitts show uh which starts on January 2nd and we also have new hours so um I will be on earlier in the night which is great 5 to 8 central 6 to 9 eastern and we're really looking forward to this show. Uh, we just had a meeting and had some really awesome ideas about what we want to do for our listeners. So look forward to starting that show. And I look forward to you guys hearing my interview with Jason Fitz. That's coming up next.
0: That's what she said.
1: So happy to have my future co-host of Spain and Fitz, Also, you can find him on SportsCenter on Snapchat, which is a brand new endeavor, just a couple weeks old, and game nights for college football playoff coming up. You can hear him and Mike Golick Jr. more details on exactly what they'll be doing for those college playoff games uh, to come, but I thought I'd have him on the pod, so I could have, uh, not only I could get to know him a little better, but you guys could as well, leading up to the debut of our show on January 2nd, so Jason Fitz, thanks for hanging out with me.
0: I am so stinking excited to hang out with you now. (laughs) And equally stinking excited to hang out with you every single night. This is going to be amazing. I uh, I could not be more stoked for what life is bringing right now. And it's awesome that we get to do it together.
1: We will talk about how life is bringing you a new zip code as well later. And that that might not be quite as exciting as the show itself. But we're going to get to that. We're going to start at the beginning first. So... A lot of people might not know your background and how you found yourself in the sports world now. Um, so I want to set up all the stuff that came before that. And um, first things first, what kind of a kid were you? I'm talking, you know, formative years.
0: Yeah, I was a fat kid that played the violin growing up, Sarah. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's fatty fits. That's uh, you know, I made no. that nickname up. Kids, the kids didn't give that to me. I made it up. Uh, okay, good. No, I, I mean, in all in all seriousness, I started playing the violin when I was four. Um, I grew up in Vegas as a little kid, started playing the violin when I was four. Uh, by the time I was eight, I was the kid that practiced eight hours a day. I got into Juilliard when I was 10. I played Carnegie hall when I was 10. I was supposed to be a little, uh, classical music prodigy. And, uh, and that didn't turn out to be the case As I got uh, older. I just realized I couldn't stand, uh, I couldn't stand playing Mozart anymore and I was burned out on it. And so I, uh, I, you know, eventually in life moved to Nashville and, uh, uh, wait, 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 slow down. To sing. Let's okay. get back. Okay.
1: Before, yeah, before we get to the singing, um, so were your parents musically inclined? They were the ones that put the violin in your hands?
0: Not a single musically inclined person in my house anywhere, anyhow. Huh? We lived in Vegas. Uh, we lived next to uh, a guy that had been Elvis's band leader back in the day, and my mom had always wanted to learn piano. So uh, we got a piano in the house, and he would come over and give her lessons. And after the lessons like she was terrible my mom has no musical uh, <laughs> skill whatsoever and after the lessons i would crawl up on the bench and i would just play by ear what they were trying to teach my mom to play so wow. my parents are like okay so there's some weird propensity here so they took me of all places they took me to unlv uh you know out in Vegas. And you were living uh, in vegas then yeah as a little okay. kid i was in vegas so they took me to unlv and they said hey I think he's got a skill for piano. Don't know where to get him lessons. Can we start him here? And they didn't have any piano teachers available. So that by happenstance, they said, hey, there's no piano teachers available, but we can put him in violin right now. And so I started, that's where I started. And, uh, you know, that that was the way it went to, to violin. It was never really intended. And my mom and dad were never the type that um, were like pushing, you got to be a musician. They were kind of the opposite. My mom always used to joke that I could be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief, anything other than a musician, because, They knew so many of them growing up. so.
1: Yeah, so you you had a natural proclivity. You become very good at it. You go to Juilliard. You go to Carnegie Hall. At what age and at what point was there a realization that not only your parents didn't demand this of you and it wasn't a requirement, but that you felt passionate enough about not doing it that you wanted to stop, not just pull it back, but stop altogether?
0: Uh, So that would have been my, I I guess it was my junior, senior year in high school, uh, because of all things, like I was always sort of self-motivated. I mean, I didn't really understand that everybody didn't practice a violin eight hours a day. That was sort of normal for me. So, uh, And and my parents are very much, you make a commitment, you're going to live through the commitment. So um, there was definitely an expectation once I got good at it that I would would work harder than anybody. That was sort of uh, absolutely bred into my DNA, but... In high school, of all things, I went out and auditioned for the High School Musical because I wanted to do something fun and get my head out of sort of the competitiveness of it at the high school that I was going to at the same time as all of this. And uh, I got the lead role in it, and I found out that uh, singing's a lot easier than playing the violin and a lot more fun. And uh <laughs> if you, you know, have a natural girls like gift it for it, right? <laughs> so,
1: yeah, and yeah. the girls, so the like, girls you know like what? a singer maybe more than a violin player.
0: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> Wait, what was the musical? Was sort of this, uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technical oh, Dream Coat.
1: Ama- I saw the show with Donny Osmond when I was a kid. Nice. And I was so angry because when they re-upped the tour, they were casting new kids for the children's choir, and I was too tall because I was, like, already taller than Donny Osmond when I was 12.
0: <laughs> oh, that's crazy. That's which, I was really angry. Hysterical. They were
1: supposed to look like children next to him, and I was like, what? <laughs> uh, but a great show. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it was okay. sort of the... Yeah eye-opening moment. And um, yeah, and so that's when I started singing. And frankly, there were four of us in that show together that started in, of all things, a barbershop quartet for fun, because we thought that would be kind (laughs) of an interesting, different thing to do. And uh, we did a barbershop thing and we did a talent show in DC. And there was a a guy there that uh, now is this big, you know, R&B rapper dude, but he wasn't then. He was this scrawny little guy named Darrell. And uh, he came up to us and said, I think I can make you guys famous. And that's how I got my first record deal. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm not going to play classical music anymore. I'm going to go be famous, which okay. never quite so happened. Wait.
1: Right. Okay, so you're in Vegas. You do this barbershop well, quartet. Well, not anymore. Now I'm in D.C. I move around no, no, a no. lot there. It's- okay, so the the barbershop quartet kids were in D.C. or Vegas?
0: D.C. Yeah, I left Vegas when I was like, um, I guess, 10, 11, uh, that, okay, that age. Okay, so we your went high school
1: years were D.C. Uh,
0: Maine for a couple of years and then D.C. <laughs> okay, are you an Army Brad? But- no, no, my parents are just very eccentric. So my mom knew she hated the desert. She knew because I'd gotten into Juilliard and done the Carnegie Hall thing that we wanted to be on the East Coast, and she had no idea where we were going to go. So we loaded what we owned into a truck. We drove to Niagara Falls, and we flipped a coin. And it came up heads, and because it was it was heads or tails, came up heads, and my mom had always loved Maine. So we moved to Maine, and my dad would drive me down from Maine to New York for my lessons for like two, three days a week basically every week for most of my adolescent life. And how far and then was I'd that? i come back to Maine. Uh, four, four and a half, four and a half hours. They didn't just do like so, upstate New York? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you would have thought uh, that that might have made more sense. Jersey, but, uh, Hoboken, the other, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the other hustle part of sort of my, my upbringing in life is my parents never really had much. So once we got to Maine, uh, we especially didn't have much. So even to afford the gas money, My dad would go to auctions and buy, like, antiques and refurbish them. And on the drive Mm. from Maine down to New York, we would stop at, like, you know, Cape Cod and all the, like, uh, antique stores and try and sell enough. My dad and I would try and sell enough stuff that he could make sure he could get us the gas money to get us back and forth.
1: Wow. Okay, that's crazy. So what did your parents do for work originally in Vegas when you were growing
0: up? They both worked in casinos. So um, my mom was actually... The first female executive in casino in uh, her casino at the time to get maternity leave when she was pregnant with me because back then women were only dealers so when she became a like a pit boss or a floor manager, whichever it was uh before she was pregnant with me um she had to they had to figure that out that had never been a thing so wow. um you know so they both worked in casinos and then when we moved uh, my dad had been in the navy a long time ago uh so when they moved to the east coast there was a a uh, naval shipyard in Maine, and my dad was able to get work at the shipyard uh, to go back to sort of navy roots. But then, that was the depression recession era of the early '90s, and the shipyard closed, and uh, and so he found himself quickly out of work. So, uh, that was a move that was a, a difficult one. And did your mom work in Maine? Um, she, you know, yeah, she she worked for like I don't I don't even remember what it was for. She worked for like a Sam's Club or something, just sort of like right. Uh, odds and ends sort of jobs. They were sort of, I I think that was a much different era in the in the early nineties when you moved. It wasn't like now where you could look on the internet and figure things out. Right. Uh, you just so show up and of, see
1: what's right.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, are you an uh, only yeah, child? So it was piecemeal. Uh, no, I have an older brother, but uh, he's five years older and when we left uh, when we left Vegas, he stayed in Vegas, so
1: And so he was what, fifteen then?
0: Uh it's probably sixteen, yeah. Uh we yeah, he was—he was, uh, he was yeah, like he was, ready
1: to be on his own.
0: Yeah, he was—he was very much like I'm going to go out and and carve my own path, whatever that means. So, uh, you know, the, so yeah, definitely a weird family background for me, no doubt.
1: Very unique. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe yeah. we'll get back to your brother. We'll see. So now you're in Maine. You're driving down to Juilliard, and then around midway through high school, you get to DC. What brought you to DC?
0: My dad got transferred. Uh, they, there was a government contract available, so. One day we picked up and moved from Maine to D.C. I mean, it was that that quick, which is probably why I've never had a hard time being on the road. As I tell this story back, the amount of times in life it's been like, all right, we're moving is uh, kind of interesting.
1: (laughs) Well, and also I find so I've had a lot of people on the podcast and specifically with Army Brats or people who moved a lot. I find that it does one of two things. Either you become an incredibly good person at making new friends because you're so used to it. Or you become resentful about it, and it's hard for you to meet people because you have to start fresh every time, and it's difficult. Um, you strike me as well, someone for, who gets dropped somewhere and then just starts talking to the wall if there's no one else to talk
0: to. I think for me, especially later in life, being on tour buses all the time in the music industry, it was interesting because having to suddenly change schools and dealing with you know horrible sixth graders in, in Maine, and then horrible you know whatever ninth or tenth graders in Maryland. You just uh you sort of you figure that out and and so for me, it's actually kind of funny as I got as my platform and music got bigger when I was tour on tour, I would go in and talk to you know musicians and and string kids and sort of the awkward kids and just sort of remind them that the whole bullying thing was a real part of my life, and it actually made mm-hmm. me stronger so right uh, you know I think that there can be and as weird as it sounds from some of the negativity that that has become so prevalent in society, I think there could be a real positive from some of it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you're at the high school in DC. You do the musical. You start the barbershop quartet. How are you? How do you decide to go from just being at school performing to entering a talent show? Is there someone at your school, a teacher or a, uh, somebody a singing coach, who says you guys are really good? You should take this somewhere.
0: Yeah, we actually, because like I mean, we were in a barbershop quartet and we were kids. That wasn't very prominent. So right, um, the, the barbershop <laughs> society actually asked us to do a competition. We went out there and we did really well in it. And um, and so it was one of those things where we are like, hey, let's just do this for fun. And, uh, you know, one of the guys that I went to high school, a couple of the guys I went to high school with were on the Mickey Mouse Club. And, and uh, so it was like there was uh, one of the guys in the quartet had been on the Mickey Mouse Club. And so I think entertainment, like he was on Broadway at the same time I had been at Juilliard. So I think we both just were like, hey, this is a fun side thing to do. And uh, and once we we did it, we're like, hey, we should just do this whenever we can at events. And so we got asked to do a like a, a church event in D.C. of all things. And we were there, and like I said, there was a you know scrawny scrawny guy named Darrell that came up, and now he's like this big jack, bunch of Grammy nominated. His name's Tank now, but he wasn't Tank <laughs> then; he was just Darrell. But uh, Darrell came up and was like, you know, I think uh, this was you know mid '90s, and he came up and I said, I think. You guys are the, going to be the white boys to men, and we're going to do something interesting here. And so, I mean, in what felt like seconds, we suddenly had a record deal with RCA New York. and uh, But it was through a production company, and we were like, hey, we're going to be famous. So we all sort of quit what we were doing, and we're like, hey, what's better than working really hard is just having somebody make you instantly famous. So we thought that was going to be the, the plan. The problem is they were working on another project ahead of us. And that project did not do well, the production company's project. And we learned the pop record deal mentality at that point where they just cut the entire arm because that project didn't do well. We all lost our deals. And so we were sitting there suddenly and we're like, okay, now we have no record deal and no idea what to do. And it was, again, it was like 96 and uh, that, that Garth Brooks, Tim McGraw era of country had really taken storm in DC. We were all listening to it. So like, it's weird for me that I was listening to Garth Brooks At the same time that I was listening to Blackstreet, you know, trying to figure out where I fit in all of this. And we were like, well, we'll move to Nashville. So the four of us. Okay, wait, hold on.
1: Really quick. Before we move on, Mm -hmm. I I appreciate the the speed of your narrative, but I got to stop you at moments because I have to ask to cover all my bases. Were the guys at your high school in the Mickey Mouse Club, Ryan Gosling and Justin Timberlake?
0: No, I went to high school with um, a guy named Jason Miner that was on the Mickey Mouse Club, and I did go to high school with J.C. Chazet. so Josh Chazet. Okay. I had a feeling um, one of them might so. be
1: someone we all know and that you just smoothed over that. Uh, yeah,
0: all no, right, I was so. not in a group, although it is funny, I will tell you, bad life decisions. The guy <laughs> that was the bass in our in our quartet when we first got signed to RCA actually got asked to be the bass in NSYNC, and we heard the demos. They you know They got signed to Europe and at the time, like Nirvana and and like I said, like it was like Nirvana and Jodeci. Nobody was listening to what NSYNC was. And we heard the demos to NSYNC. And the guy that was the bass in our quartet was like, no, nah, I'll take a pass on that. So mm. um, <laughs> bad life decisions. That, life decisions yeah. he still regrets to this I day. Bet. So, and that, that uh, J.C. Has still has given him grief for to this day.
1: I bet. All right. So, um, by the way, who was your was your barbershop quartet when it got the record deal for the uh boy band. What kind of boy band was it? Was it the stylings of In Sync, or what kind of music were you going for? Uh,
0: no, they wanted us to do like they were. They put an R and B team around us, so the goal was to be a very R and B project. To men. With yeah, boy, it was going to be white boys to men. They thought that there was a so it was all white cycle guys for that. Yeah, um, okay, white guys doing R and B. Right. Okay. You know, it's shocking it didn't work now in hindsight. I, I can't imagine <laughs> what.
1: Uh It could but. work. You never know. You never know. Okay, so then <laughs> you... <laughs> had you actually recorded an album, or no? You had a record deal, no. you were prepping, and then it felt We different. were
0: three songs in in the studio, and then mm. it just went away. So, oh. which became a, a, a pattern of my life, really, as we, as we get to the next chapter in Nashville. The, the same, I mean, I went through this. I mean, we got to Nashville, and again, we knew nobody. The four of us Loaded up our cars and we drove. And to And how old were you? Um, it was, gosh, uh, maybe eighteen, nineteen. So it was, it was right at twenty years ago. So okay, probably nineteen. Okay, so you had
1: graduated high school, or did you leave high school?
0: Yeah, yeah, I graduated from high school, um, but we all and we all went to like six seconds of college and then all dropped out because we got the record. So where'd you go to school? Um, uh, Juilliard. So.
1: Oh, uh, that was college. And that was.
0: Well, it was high school too. So it was their prep program through that. Got it. So okay, then, so then you get to Nashville. You get in, yeah, then we get to Nashville. and um you know we we it, it was a different era in life back then. again, like we got a phone number of like every record label guy we could find, and we just literally sang on message machines, like we would get voicemail boxes and we would just sing on them until somebody called us, which <laughs> eventually they did. And we got our first record deal in Nashville uh with Capitol, singing um we sang beach boy covers a cappella in the office of the president of Capitol at the time and he said hey i have no idea what i'm going to do with you guys but you're really good so we're going to give you a record deal and we're going to figure out how to make it famous so we and what was the was name good. of your group at this time it was literally on everything it was just called the quartet because nobody had a name they liked for any of them. that's terrible so, okay like i still have i still have done <laughs> well they didn't want to commit to a name until they could see right. what passes through Copyright right. and clearance. So we <laughs> literally have – I still have demos somewhere that say the quartet on them. It's like <laughs> spectacular, guys. Well, okay, We're going to bring one of those out work. on the
1: show for sure. Yeah. Oh,
0: flashback, flashback Friday. Uh, <laughs> so we, we were on Capitol for you know a couple of seconds, and the of all things, the president of Capitol did a Wall Street Journal interview about what was coming at Capitol. And he, he said, man, I got this. And we were not a boy band. We were not trying to be a boy band. But he's like, the boy bands were starting to hit. And he's like, I got this boy band. It's like a country thing. It's basically the Backwoods Boys, which immediately what? caused, like, yeah. Well, And he was saying it jokingly, you know. But Right,
1: which you're not, <laughs> you, you're, you're an R&B group that's not a boy band, and that somehow you've turned into a country boy right. band.
0: So, exactly, <laughs> overnight. Uh, and the funny thing is country radio stations, without even hearing where we were, uh, like, they'd never heard a song. They went nuts, how this was everything that was wrong with country and you know guys that didn't belong in the in the genre coming in trying to chase fame we got dropped the next day it was that that was that wait so wait there was such before a you'd done anything from,
1: just because of the the way that you'd been described by a guy who didn't even describe you right
0: welcome to country music so wow. uh, and at times especially in the 90s at times it was very much like are you here because you want to be here? Or are you here because you're using us for something? Country was a very protected genre in the nineties. And we didn't know that we were just trying like, we didn't really care about genre. We just cared about making music. We were really proud of, you know, as cheesy as that sounds. And so people would pitch us songs and we would break them apart and we would do these crazy acapella versions of them. And then a couple of the guys play guitar and uh, I played fiddle. So I was like, all right, we could put some instrumentation on it. I could figure out how to play fiddle stuff. So um, is fiddle was, the same you know, as
1: violin in terms of uh, same number of strings, same same notes, everything else, pretty much?
0: Yeah, the only difference is who's paying the bill. I mean, it's the okay. same exact instrument in every possible way. Yeah. So right. when I first came to town, I sat in with the orchestra here in Nashville, a bunch of the symphony, and then I played in the studio orchestra called The String Machine. I played on everything from Matchbox 20 to Alan Jackson to Amy Grant records to movie soundtracks. I mean, I played on all this orchestral stuff. But awesome. then we were going to, uh, at some point, point, the one of the labels we were with was going to hire a fiddle player for a gig for us, and I was, I'm too cheap for that. I was like, I'm not going to pay somebody to play fiddle. I can figure that out. So I just, for me, I never, like, I didn't grow up on Charlie Daniels. I didn't grow up on, you know, traditional country. So I took a bunch of 70s rock records, like Eagles records and Boston records, and said, okay, how can I dissect their guitar solo and approach it on a fiddle? So that was what awesome. stylistically sort of, put me in that range. And then in the meantime, the band just kept getting signed and dropped inside. I mean, we went from Capitol to RCA to Lyric Street, to DreamWorks, to uh, Hollywood Records, which is the the California division of it, all within a year and a half. I mean, we just were bouncing from place to place to place. And by then we we had a name and, and there'd been some, like we signed up with a production company. And so we were then called Shiloh. There's been a million Shilohs, but we were one of them. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we had a number one song in L.A. on the radio and thought we were going to be really big. Really? And, what was the know, song? It was called You're the Reason. Um, but it was of course it was. just uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, but it was just big in L.A. And so this is your music business 101. You got five guys at that point. We were we added a guy. So we're five guys at that point. We are uh, living in Nashville. And every time we have shows to play that are worth anything, they're out in California. So you got to oh, fly five guys plus whatever extra people you need out there. So I learned the phrase recoupable debt really quickly, which is, uh, right. <laughs> you know, the money that you spend that you'll never get back, uh, you know, that the label eventually takes from you if you ever make any money. So we just, we circled and, and we opened for everybody and we toured with everybody. And in the, in the three or four years that we maintained a full road schedule, I made a total of $750 total
1: Wow! Uh, in
0: that, in that process. So, um, so we were trying hard to make it. It just it just wasn't working. So I left when I left the band. It was because I thought I was going to stay at home and write songs and, and just play sessions and play on records. And that's when I got asked to go out with uh, a guy at the time. Right after I left the band, a guy named Phil basser that was a big country guy in the late '90s, early 2000s asked me to go out and play fiddle with him. Uh, I did that for uh, I don't know a couple of years, and then I got asked to go out with a country guy named Easton Corbin. And on the tour with Easton Corbin, that's where I met the band Perry. The band Perry then came up and said, "Hey, uh, how would you like to join here?" And so then I spent six years on the road, well, five and a half years on the road with the band Perry. Okay, so
1: I have found Shiloh, and you're the reason. I will be uh, oh. adding that to the podcast. Uh, I don't know if that's I haven't heard that but... in. I haven't heard I it in, saying, in I don't at know least
0: if... fifteen years.
1: I'll have to find out later if I'm allowed to, I I mean, it's now defunct. I don't know who has the rights. If I'm allowed to play like 30 seconds on the pod, I might just roll the dice because let's be honest. I don't know who is checking. If there's anything I know
0: that Shiloh is being
1: after. Um, It looks to me based on this, uh, these two promotional photos that your signature look was very small glasses uh, that looked a little like somebody, I think someone in Color Me Bad might've had
0: those. Yeah, yep, uh, I, I think the label, so here's the true story behind that. And you had a butt cut. Uh, uh, no, no, I, it, it grew out over time. It got long because <laughs> here's what happened. Uh, we sang, like I said, I left this part of the Capitol story out. We sing. the president of the Capitol looks at us and says, you guys are amazing. At the time there were four, or Shiloh eventually turned out to be five. He said, look, you guys are amazing. I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you a record deal, right? And then he points directly at me and says, you, you, you're not cool. All right, so whatever has to change for you to be cool, I don't know. Like, grow out the hair, get get some different glasses, I don't care. So then the record label was like, okay, you are now growing out your hair, and here are some stupid glasses. And I wore glasses at the time anyway. But the funny thing want, is, every did, like, time we got... Like you're styling, yeah. Oh, my God. Every time we got signed by anybody, they were like, you, 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 you're not cool. So keep growing the <laughs> they hair They would out. change it to something else. I mean, and it was funny because when I met my wife, I I had long hair. And uh, for our wedding, when we got married, I really wanted to cut it off. I had just left the band. I wanted to cut the hair off. And she was like, oh, my God, I've only known you with long hair. You can't do that. I don't want wedding pictures with a guy that I don't know if I like the way it looks. So right after we got married, I chopped my hair off. And everybody was like, oh, my God. Now people are like, why didn't you do that 10 years ago? And you're like, thanks,
1: honey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you have a sort of uh, uh, Edward Furlong with
0: me. Oh, I'll take that though. Yeah, just the hair, just the hair.
1: The glasses threw it off, but the the hair is mm. very Edward Furlong, circa Terminator Two.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the late '90s, early 2000s too. Does that help at all? I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no judgment okay. whatsoever. I mean, I could show you some pictures before I figured out how to straighten my hair, but uh, that's you know, it's funny time. because
0: like our <laughs> or, like our wedding pictures. I'm looking at one of our wedding pictures in our house right now. And I have long hair, and my wife has normal blonde hair, and she's had hair basically the color of a unicorn for about a decade, and I've had yeah. short hair, like topped-off hair for a decade. So, so now you look nothing look like your it.
1: wedding photos. Yeah.
0: <laughs> People do come in sometimes. They look like, oh, who are they? It's like, yeah, oh, that's, that's us. us.
1: That's us. Yeah. Okay, so – you, as you mentioned, you end up with the band Perry, and when they first ask you on, um, are they short a fiddle player, or are, is this just for a couple gigs, or like what did you imagine when you first played with them?
0: Um, they were making a change in fiddle, and Easton had just come off a number one song, and they called and they said, "Look, we can't guarantee you the gig, uh, but we're going to take a fiddle player this week, and if not you, somebody else. But we think that you're the right fit, and you could be good in this long term." So with no idea whether or not it was going to work, I quit the Easting gig and I went to the Van Perry bus and they gave me a CD with 17 songs on it. No sheet music. You don't get that in Nashville. You get CD with 17 songs on it. Then they said bus calls tomorrow night at midnight. And I showed up at the bus the next night at midnight and found out that their normal guitar player that they had had broken his collarbone in a bicycle accident. So there was a new guitar player that also had a CD with 17 songs in it. None of the songs were in the right key. And nobody there knew how to speak in chords or charts. So it was really a, like it was an all night session. And I, I remember calling Sonny and saying, Hey, I hope you get my wife and saying, Hey, hope you get really good at, you know, decorating a cardboard box because uh, this, <laughs> they're not going to keep me. There's no way. Uh, but the gigs went really well. And, uh, about a week later, they asked me to join, and then a couple of months in, they uh, they came to me and asked me to take over all the uh, the band responsibilities. So I became the, the musical director, band leader, whatever you want to call that. So it then became my job to to chart things, to build tracks, to run computer stuff, to make sure that guys are running learning the right parts, to do all of that wow. stuff. So wow. uh, the running of the music of it. So then Kimberly would come in and say, hey, I want a... I want a, a a medley of these three songs. Give me ideas, and so uh, I would I you know piece that stuff together, hand it off to them, and then they could they could take it wherever they want it from there.
1: Okay, so you skipped over a part where you were a financial broker, right?
0: Yeah, well, like I said, I only made seven hundred and fifty bucks in all that time on the road, and so w- with when the I first boy got, band. Right, 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 right. With with, okay. with, with Shiloh, with, with the man band, we were Shiloh. Yes, uh, but yeah, no, we, um, <laughs> the man
1: band. So, that sounds creepy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> a little bit, a little bit uh, No, what happened is I was supposed to go out on um, a string quartet With a band that was big at the time Called Sixpence None The Richer yes, On I remember this big that. international tour And um, Sixpence came in And they were like, hey um, we want you put a quartet together and tour with us So I was like, okay, yeah, no problem Then we got a record deal and Capital came in immediately And said, no, you can't go on the road Because we need you home to make a record So I didn't have a I didn't have a job and I had no idea how I was going to pay my bills. And I know that I'm, my memory is too bad to be a server. So I was like, I don't know what to do. And there was literally a buddy of mine that had just gotten a job in a in a mailroom at a at a financial firm at the time, Prudential. And so he was like, I can get you a job in the mailroom. And so I started uh, as what they used to call in the '90s a wire operator. Uh, where people would, like, you'd call your stockbroker and say, I want to buy 100 shares of Walmart. Well, he'd write it on a little ticket, put the little ticket in a suction cup, and then it would come down to me, and I'd enter it into the computer. So that was my first, like, like real job in that sense, and I was there for, you know, six months while we were making the record, and one of the main brokers there took a real liking to me. So he came in and said, look, I know you've got other things going on, but I think you're smarter than this, so I'm going to offer you a job on my, on my team. So he got me fully licensed, and I would sit backstage at concerts and do capital gains and losses, spreadsheets, uh, you know, on on mutual funds and do analysis of, if we took you from this fund to this fund, your returns could be this. And uh, that's what I did while I was on the road uh, to sustain my my livelihood. And then whenever I was home, I would just come, I'd go into the office and work, you know, 10-hour days in the office. So there was a lot of time for a while when we were doing, you know, a hundred and something shows a year that I'd spend, you know, every every waking hour either on a computer, on a stage, or, you know, in an office.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I had Andy Buckley on. He played uh David Wallace on the office and now he's on Odd oh, yeah. Mom Out, great actor guy who's been in a bunch of stuff now, but he was acting forever and not getting any big roles and he eventually wanting to have a more steady life with his wife became a stockbroker. And was doing that when the audition for The Office came up. And there's something I think to be said for this idea of like, if you stop putting all of your heart and soul and focus into what you really want, and you relax a little bit, then it comes to you, right? So you you are, yeah. you know, multitasking and doing all this other stuff and showing that you're capable in a completely different field when you know the band Perry and all the the big opportunities <laughs> arrive on your doorstep, which is kind of crazy.
0: Well, the funny thing too is I had. Eventually, after years, I'd switched firms when I left the band, and I was over at a firm called UBS, and I was working for this massive broker, really sweet, and they came to me and said, look, we want you to be the guy in Nashville that, that goes out to all the musicians and explains to them you know, what, what they need to do for retirement planning and helps bring in assets and like that sort of side of it. And so I'd sat down with my wife, and, and we'd had a conversation, and they made me an offer that was the first time in my life I was ever looking at you know the chance to make decent money and I was like, Hey, this is, this is amazing. Like you can just focus on whatever you want. Cause I'm going to be able to pay the bills. And I'm not kidding. It was like days later that Phil Vassar called and was like, Hey, you want to come on the road for pennies? And, mm-hmm. and we were like, well, if you're ever going to do it, you got to do it, which is funny <laughs> because that's how we've lived yeah. life. And then we finally get but to it- the point where I'm like, Hey, I'm in the band. I'm making good money. And, but I have this chance at ESPN. So uh, right. it, it is funny that the, uh, it is funny that uh, that's how we've always lived. I don't know if it's good or bad, but that's how we've always lived.
1: Well, there's also, you know, I guess a lesson there to figure out that, you know, you were choosing that because that's what you wanted. You had this opportunity for something steady and high-paying, and you chose music because that's what was driving you. And at any moment in your life, you can sort of hold up these options that you had and the choices that you made based on what you wanted, which teaches you, you know, what where your heart was because it wasn't like you were in it for the money and you had other opportunities that, you know, you could have chosen for your passion. You were following your right. passion, which led you to the six years on the road. Um, and you were playing five instruments with the band, in addition to being the band letter. The main one being the fiddle. But what else did you play?
0: Um, piano, uh, organ, uh, acoustic guitar. What's called a dobro, which looks like a uh, so it looks like a, a lap. It's like an acoustic guitar that you lay down flat and you play with a yeah. slide. Um, a little bit of B three, and then I ran all the computers and tracks. I also play a viola, enough viola to get by. Uh, This is what I always say. I play the violin. Like, I've worked my whole life to be very good at one instrument. What I learned in Nashville, though, is when you call people and say, hey, yeah, I play the fiddle, they're like, awesome, what else do you play? And I'm like, well, I I mean, I I spend eight hours a day on that. I didn't really book time to learn (laughs) other things. I'm sorry. Uh, But I learned quickly that I needed to be proficient at a lot of things. So it's not like I'm never going to be the guy that says, hey, throw me in front of a piano and I'm going to rip you out some. Amazing solo, but I I have learned to make a living being able to to comp other parts and being able to like come in and essentially cover things on a bunch of instruments. It's a necessity because when you think about it, like you know I'll, I'll go back to like one of my buddies is Luke Bryan's fiddle player. Well, how many songs of Luke's have fiddle? So what do you do right. for the rest of the set to make yourself yeah. employable? So you right. know he plays a lot of electric guitar. Like Carrie Underwood's fiddle player plays a lot of electric guitar. I just kind of went with all of the side instruments as my is my trick. Nice.
1: Okay, so you're doing that for 6 years. What's uh what's one of the most memorable shows or or moments you had while you were in the band Perry?
0: Um the most amazing show for me personally probably of my life would be Madison Square Garden because mm. um when I was little like I said we didn't have much. So I would um I would keep my lunch money and when I was down in Manhattan, you know, my 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 parents would stay out of the city. My dad would stay out of the city. I'd take the train in by myself. So after my lessons, a lot of times I could sneak down to the garden, and I would keep my lunch money from the week, and I'd just go up to a scalper after the puck dropped or after the tip off, and I'd say, "Okay, I got four bucks. What can I get?" So I've sat in the top row of Madison Square Garden a bunch of times in my life as a kid just to watch sports. Uh, So when we were on tour with Blake Shelton, we played the garden, sold out. That was probably the most surreal moment because you stand on stage and you can look out and you can say, "Okay, I sat in that seat. I Mm -hmm. sat in that seat. Like that's the really cool." Um, that, that's probably the most powerful one for me here. And then internationally, we played a huge festival in Hyde Park in London. Had a hundred thousand people at it, and uh, it was it was amazing to like we covered Fat Bottom Girls by Queen, and I had nice. a big fiddle solo in it. And there's this moment where I'm running up and down in, in between a hundred thousand people in London, and you're looking at people just screaming like a maniac, even if they don't know who your band is. Yeah, it's still a very surreal moment where you say, okay, this is this is what the fight was for. Was this moment?
1: Yeah, that's really cool. I've been on a couple buses in Chicago for the Blackhawks and Cubs when they win championship, and I've always described it to people as some of my coolest moments of my career because I said it's the closest I'll ever get to feeling like a rock star because it is a million people screaming at you. And they're not screaming at me. They're screaming at the players that are on the bus with me. But in that moment, the the energy that you get from people – like screaming at you and throwing all of their happiness and joy towards you is like such an incredible and unbelievable feeling. Even if as a person I accomplished nothing, <laughs> I was just there yeah, well, to about it. I but. mean, <laughs> there
0: is a, there's like a weird energy to all of it. That's amazing. Uh, controlling your energy, your adrenaline as a yeah, musician sure. is difficult in some of those, but I'll never forget the first night that I actually, cause for all the years you spend, you know, in van and trailer or sleeping in a car Or, like, trying not to admit you're sleeping in a motel half an hour away and, you you know, you have no way to get to and from a gig. The first night that you ever sleep on one of those million-dollar tour buses where you you, you rest your head and you realize somebody's driving you to the next spot, that's Mm -hmm. a a night you never forget. You sort of close the curtain. You try and act all cool. Then you close the curtain. You sit there and you just smile. and You're like, yep, yep, I I made it. it."
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. But eventually you're however many six years in, maybe it's five, maybe it's a little earlier and you start to go through the motions, right? You're playing Letterman, you're playing with Kelly Clarkson, you're playing, you know, these, these great places and with great venues and it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. What was that feeling like? And how did you kind of comprehend having gotten to where you always thought you wanted to be? And then realizing maybe it wasn't what you dreamed it would be.
0: So, you know, like sometimes my wife's a big believer, like everything happens for a reason, right? And a buddy of mine, um, th- th- his wife was doing some motivational speaking, and she had uh, like for businesses, like private corporate events, you, you know that world. And uh, she had sent me a book that was part of her speaking plan. I think that was going to come out. I don't know if it ever did or not. But she was looking for for people to write a little quote about the book. And so I, I read it, and I, I didn't want to just put a quote. Great book, you know. So I, I read it, and it was during the year that we were on the road three hundred days in one year. And a real crux of the book was, you can work your whole life uh, to, to accomplish something, and then it's okay to realize that you did accomplish it, and you don't love it, and that's a very surreal moment to come to that realization. But the sooner you come to that realization, the more you can sort of look at life and the mountaintop you're on and say, okay, how can I how can I leverage this mountaintop to get to the next mountaintop? And so. There was a moment for me where, you know, in the process of me being on the road, my wife had started her own business in fashion and she's making these fashion accessories, which she never thought she was going to do. And she's like, you could choose so a musician as up. well. Yeah. She was a singer and a dancer for years. Um, and then the flood hit Nashville. And when the flood hit Nashville, it took away all of her gigs and it took away sort of the record industry shut down. And uh, it was a, it was a real surreal moment for Nashville. And so, she, as sort of a out of necessity, because we were broke at the time, she was like, you know what, I'm going to make some some headbands for some friends, and I'm going to turn that into like a, a fun thing for the weekend. And she did, and the friends went to Louisville for this thing, and they got stopped by a magazine, and all these people were asking for a card, and so she came home and said, I'm going to make some headbands, and. You know, I kind of laughed about it at the time and thought, okay, whatever makes you happy and keeps you distracted is a good thing. And and then I watched her business just blow up and she's been in New York Fashion Week and on all sorts of celebrities. And like, I, I watched this go down while I'm on the road and I'm thinking, man, like she's so much happier doing what she's doing for whatever, wherever she is than I ever am coming in and out of stage every night. And I think that I realized that through the process of reading the book and looking at my wife, I realized that. I've been playing the violin for at that point, you know, thirty something years, and you look at it and say, "Man, I I, I love what I I love that I've gotten here, but I don't love what I do." Like I, I respect it and I, I'm honored to be here, but it doesn't like doesn't give me some thrill. And so I came home from a long run where we've been gone for months, and and I said to my wife, "I said, you know, I think I've realized that I'm lucky to do what I do, but I don't love what I do." And she said, "If I asked a hundred of your friends that just blindly." what you really are passionate about, what would the answer be? And so I said sports, because that's all I talk about on the bus. That's all I watch. That's all I've watched my whole life. That's all I've ever, like, really, that's what has, that's what moves me. And so she said, find a way to talk about sports. And that was uh, I don't know, a little over four years ago. And so I, uh, I went in, I took all my string recording software and my microphone that I cut, like, string sections on, and I sat in my car because I felt like an idiot. And I, uh, I recorded a, a, a podcast. Uh, I didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> you did it but in your car. I recorded car. A 10 minutes. Yeah, I did. I, I felt so stupid. I didn't even know what to do. <laughs> so I, I sat in my car, and I, you know, Sarah, you'll appreciate this. Like, I stopped every um, every oh, mm-hmm. every breath. Like, I edited it like it was a, a string section, and I pieced together this 10-minute podcast. And my original vision was if I could create a podcast that made sports fans happy and made non-sports fans laugh, what would it look like? So, I you know, as the podcast grew... I brought in a buddy and he started writing like SNL style, style like mock ads. And, and (laughs) you know, I'd have my friends that are all entertainers come over and voice these things. And, you know, we, we put together this, this kind of combination of, I'm going to talk about what, what I'm really passionate about in sports. And then I'm going to make people laugh. And then I'm going to network. And in the process of, of just trying to meet people, as I met people in sports, I would have them come on and talk about football. And as I met people in football, I'd have them talk about sports. So, I launched one episode. That you had mean a, music. You would Fall have Out Out the music. That... People
1: talk about sports, and the sports people talk about music.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, Fallout Boy talked about how much like Pete uh, Pete Wentz is a big Bears fan, uh, but Andy Hurley, their drummer, is a huge Packers fan. And so, like, we talked about that. And then when I had Shefty on, he didn't talk about NFL insider stuff. He talked about Billy Joel karaoke. So I just like I tried to get everybody to do something a little outside their normal zone, and and just started building something that I thought would be fun, and I approached it the same way as my music career. I wanted every week to be my demo, and I wanted to never know who's going to listen any week, so I said I was going to do one every week, and that meant there were times that I was literally in, in coffee shops in Norway trying to find internet fast enough to upload a 30-minute podcast, and uh, and it became sort of an obsession for me, and it became a release for me, and Eventually, I was lucky enough to have a couple people take note, and then they would tell their friends, and they would tell their friends. And before you know it, a couple of people at ESPN heard it, and they said, You know what? You're not bad, but you need to work on some things. And they gave me tips, and I integrated it. And I just kept pounding on doors and saying, What do you think now? What do you think now? Until they, they cared.
1: So you were still touring with the band when you started the podcast. You're putting it up on your Facebook and then getting as many people to listen just to spread the word and at what point did you feel comfortable saying to the band okay i'm ready to leave this behind and to your wife i would imagine i'm ready to leave this behind there goes the steady paycheck there goes the tours and i'm just gonna do this
0: so i um i'll never forget this i had the band had asked me to grow into um a management piece as well so uh, I was working, I was playing, and then I was also working what they call day-to-day management for the band uh, as well. So sometimes during shows, I was literally texting for co-writers in LA, and we were bouncing back and forth, traveling everywhere with the band. Uh, and this was last year; it was uh, about a year and a half ago. And, and the intent was for me to get off the road and and go into management. I think that was what everybody had geared towards, and that's where we looked like we were going. Um, and I had I hadn't heard from ESPN in so long that I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'm just maybe i'm just never going to get the break but i'll just keep doing the podcast and see if anyone cares you know and uh i got a call last summer out of the blue from one of the people in the talent office and they said look we know that you're an nfl guy but where are you on college football and i've lived in nashville for 20 years i've covered college football on the pod I, i'm i'm passionate about it so i said heck yeah and i happen to have the next day off and they said, can you be in charlotte tomorrow so i flew to charlotte hmm. i met with a bunch of people i had sushi I uh, argued with somebody I didn't know who he was about whether or not college athletes should get paid. And it turns out he's a guy that ran ESPNU at the time and, and works for the nice. FCC Network and all of that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they called the next day and they said, hey, we're going to offer you a new TV show, College Football Daily, uh, with Mike O'Leary Jr. and Elika Sadeghi. And um, I'd never done a TV show for – I mean, I've done a lot of TV for music, but never for football. And they said, here's the deal. Uh, you're gonna get a a contract that says after one show, if you're bad, we can fire you, and wow. if after, you know, if after 12 shows it's good, maybe we redo it. We don't know. We're just gonna we're gonna protect ourselves because who knows? And uh, so I I went to Sunny and I said, "What do you think?" And and she said, uh, "It's what you want to do, and this is the opportunity of a lifetime." So I went to the band and. And I said, hey, I've got the opportunity of a lifetime to do this. Um, you know, uh, what do you guys think? I, I just need to be in Charlotte every Monday. And they were in the process of working on a project that was going to make that really difficult. So it just wasn't going to work with their schedule and my schedule. So we, uh, so Son- I came to Sonny and I said, I don't know what to do. She said, take the contract. So it was mm-hmm. that simple. I, uh, I quit the band with no idea how I was going to keep our lights on, no idea if they were going to keep me, no idea what was going to happen. And... A couple of days after I quit, I got a call from a local Nashville station, of uh, the ESPN affiliate here, unrelated to ESPN, and they said, we just heard you left the road, and we're launching a new morning show. Uh, we need a co-host on it, and you know the co-host, and we think you'd be a great fit. You want to come in and do uh, an hour of mock radio. And so within a couple of weeks of quitting the band, I, I had a, a TV show and a morning show in Nashville.
1: So, okay, first of all, what's funny that you and I are going to be doing the show together is... I was supposed to do that college football show and I got offered it and I am not a college football person. It's something I'm just now getting into. And so for me, it was not like the trouble of going to Charlotte once a week and losing all that time flying to do a show that would have required an enormous amount of prep because it's not my wheelhouse. Um, I ended up turning it down, but we, you and I might've been co-hosts and partners far earlier in this process had I said yes. And their goal was to get people with, um, personality and be different and new and fresh and different than what they've seen before which I'm sure is why they decided um to bring you in you know somebody that that had a different flavor um so that's that's crazy first of all um so then you're, you're immediately on TV doing sports which you've never done before <laughs> and how did the radio show find out that you were no longer touring did you have a connection there and had you already done stuff with them from the podcast
0: yeah well I knew the I knew the co-host that they uh, they originally had a, a show that was going to be launched with a couple of guys, and one of the guys was blocked by a non-compete. And the guy that was blocked by a non-compete is a friend of mine for years, and he had heard through the grapevine that I had left the band. So it was really that simple. Had I not left the band, he never would have called me for it because he I don't think he ever would have thought I would just leave the band to take a morning show. Uh, right. But it—it it, it sort of just the stars aligned, you know, and, and when the stars aligned with it, it was, which which has been amazing. I mean, I just I just uh, obviously left that morning show because what we're about to do, but it's been incredible for me and, and really helpful for me because all the time that that maybe ESPN Radio wasn't using me as much or or I wasn't getting as much run on TV, I've had daily reps every day coming in and being able to talk about uh, all things Nashville. So it it helps it helps my rhythm. Helps. It's been huge for me. So yeah, uh, it's it sort of the stars aligned.
1: All right, so that was Braden and Fitz. That was on 102.5 right. The Game, and that is an ESPN affiliate? Yes. Okay, so you were doing that, and that was morning drive time. And then right. starting in February of last year, so not 2017, 2016, you also started doing a show with Jordan Rodgers. Was that also on The Game?
0: Um, that's, that's February of this, uh, this year.
1: Oh, really? February
0: 17th, yeah. It's all been that fast, yeah. February 17th. You You're doing both
1: those shows or no?
0: Yes, yeah. So what I would do, because Jordan and I did the Sunday night show starting in February on ESPN Radio nationally. So I would go in, I'd do that show, um, and when I got off, I'd go sleep on a couch in the studio, get up and do the morning show from the studio and then come home.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Tell me the hours.
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, Jordan and I were done at, I think, midnight on Sunday nights. And then I usually get into the office. I try to get into the office uh, or the studio uh, between 4.30 and 5. So I'd, like, I'd be done at midnight. I'd write what I need to write for the next morning. I'd sleep for about four hours and then come in and do the morning show.
1: In the studio or? Yeah, up on the couch in the studio. That's crazy. But that was just I, I one like... night a week. The rest of the week you would. Yeah, add... that was one night a week. Um, okay, more normal schedule. Okay, so you're, you're now, going Now, that was up... one
0: night a week until this summer. This summer when. ESPN Radio became, and I, I'm uh, incredibly thankful for this, but ESPN Radio had a lot of opportunity for me this summer because of vacations and because of everything going on with schedules. And So I spent a lot of the summer, a lot of people listened on Jalen and Jacoby. I think I, I did most of July and August on Jalen and Jacoby. Uh, but I still did my morning drive then. So there were a lot of times that I would I would drive in, drive home for a couple hours, then go back to the studio, then come back home for a few hours. A lot of back and forth. I've slept on the couch at 102.5. More times than anybody should, especially <laughs> you know, not in trouble. Like it's not like my wife. Right. Says, you go sleep in the studio now. Yeah.
1: Well, it feels like you. Um, obviously, your upbringing, bouncing around. You're very comfortable on the road. You're also very comfortable with sort of like figuring out what's next, taking a chance on things. You don't need. It. You're. You don't. You're not somebody who requires a ton of security. Um, which is why you've been able to make these leaps that are leaps of faith. Um, do you think your wife has always been the same way, or that's something that she acquired as a result of being with you?
0: Total opposite. She's the total opposite. She. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. She. She. And and she's been. You know. She loves Nashville. We love Nashville. Her her parents are in Nashville. Uh. You know. Her families here. Friends are here. She's very. Uh. You know. Change happens when change absolutely must happen. And right. I'm sort of like All right, we got to change him. We'll go with it. Like, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting. You know, we've got a, a challenge coming over the next year. Uh, that, uh, but it's not like we're not used to me touring. It's not like we're not used to me being gone. I think the only thing that stinks is we've gotten used to me being home. So uh, now that we'll have to flip, we'll have to flip that back. And, and you know, real world, like that's just not that's not an invisible thing. But uh, but at the same time, you have to chase the dream.
1: Right. Okay, so yeah, so that brings us to sort of today, and it's good because we're running out of time, but the good news is, is that we have a show together, so I can ask you all right. the many questions I have during that, but, um, so you are for the new show, that uh, Spain and Fitz, I finally get my name first on a show, which is very exciting, um, Spain and Fitz, is, uh, you're going to be in Bristol for a lot of it because you're doing the Snapchat show and you're going to have other opportunities at ESPN. You want to get to know people since you're new. Um, so how are you going to figure that out? Are you going to head home to Nashville on some weekends? Wife going to come visit? Um, how are you adjusting to the new zip code idea?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. I mean, we got, a, uh, we got a little apartment up there and we're going to look at that as sort of like our, our fun house. And uh, so we'll, we'll I'll be up there Monday through Friday, most weeks, and then I'll fly home Saturday, Sunday, fly back to Bristol on Monday. And then uh, sometimes I'll stay an extra day as the schedules allow. And and then, uh, you know, we'll see as we get further into the year. Uh, you know, I'll bring her up and she'll stay for like a week here or there. And, and then, you know, I'm sure as we get to summer uh, and, and there's opportunity, you know, everything gets a little calmer in the world, I'll probably come down to Nashville and do the show from here uh, occasionally, too. So we'll just try and bounce back and forth and, and make the most of whatever we have. That's the one good thing about it. You don't waste a lot of time when you've got to, when you don't have a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and then maybe you'll come to Chicago, and we'll do some shows from here, and then we can show
0: you. Oh around. yeah, I mean the SNL <laughs> Museum in Chicago, so we're we're 100 in. Like, I think that she asked true. me about weekly when we go into Chicago. So you know,
1: in fact, I think my my next giant birthday party because I have big birthday parties every year. I always find an excuse to do something big. Is probably going to be at the SNL Museum because they rent it out for events, and then everyone will have to dress as a character. So start thinking now
0: about. Um, we actually, I will tell you. <laughs> We did. That. I'll send you the pictures. Sonny's birthday party last year was an SNL theme party. So, uh, or this year. So I was. Uh, I was go No boy, way. And uh, yeah, yeah. And she was Sally O'Malley. No way. That's crazy. Spot on. Got spot on. Got the costumes. And I, I'm not saying they're spot on, but, uh, but uh, I'll I'll tweet them to you because they are awesome. Don't oh forget That's so funny that you guys are
1: just just did that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly. You know, I was thinking about when you transitioned from um or or even when you just started the pod while you were still on tour there's a big difference between liking sports and watching sports and then working in it covering it and one of the biggest differences is obviously that you're talking about and covering things that you don't necessarily like right when you watch it for fun you're just going to watch the teams you like the sports you like um when you take it on as a job it's a lot more all-encompassing particularly knowing all the national coaches and players and everything else um so, what was your prep like? Like, and what is your prep still like to to kind of catch up and make up for maybe those years when you when it was a side hustle and now and now it's the real thing?
0: I think you never stop reading. Like, that's the biggest thing for me is that my mind has never worked normal. Um, you know, in general, like I I uh, I'm the per- type of person that has to rip everything apart and then rebuild it to make it make sense for my mind. So I've always watched over analytically in every everything that I've done. Uh, and I feel like there's sort of a bit of a, from the minute I started the podcast, there's been a bit of a, you know, chip on my shoulder, inferiority complex to prove that I'm not just a fiddle player talking about sports. Right. So uh, a lot of time, uh, yeah, heading head in the book. And that's one thing that helped me on a podcast is the amount of hours that you have on a day when you're on the road where you can just, you know, rip your head into everything that's going on. I think that, that there's a couple of different pieces to the job for me that I love one is trying to, you know, get every piece of information process two is reading as much as I can. And then three is trying to figure out why I see it different than everybody else does. And that's sort of naturally how I I work. So, uh, you know, I think that you never I just I never stop absorbing content wherever I go. So it doesn't matter whether I'm reading something or whether I'm listening to something. I constantly have something in my ear that's making me think about what we're going to talk about. And that's sort of what that's what drives me.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that you're always trying to prove that you're not just a fiddle player who talks sports, which is sort of like being a woman, right? Like you can't just right. be someone who naturally likes it and, and knows about it. You have to battle back against people who are constantly doubting you, which is an interesting position that we're both in now. Um, although
0: I, I'm, well, sure I'm not going to make our show interesting because... Right. After I'm, a year I'm in the industry, frankly, I'm, ready to-
1: <laughs> I'm sure that yeah. you will be given much more of a benefit of the doubt than I will. So
0: that's good for you. <laughs> well... I think the interesting thing is how many people are going to just be foaming at the mouth to, to rip us apart. And I love hate it. us. I don't bring it. Right. Great. A woman and
1: a musician. Just what we need. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you know, I have to say, I was really impressed by the reaction from uh, the game in Nashville to you signing off on your old show and moving on. You were not there for that long. And everyone there loves you. I mean, it was like a, it was a eulogy fit for someone who'd spent a twenty-year career in the industry. Uh, to what do you explain that, other than you know just patting yourself on the back for being a great dude?
0: No, I think that that I've always looked at what we do as an opportunity to bring a little bit of a light and a little bit of brightness to everybody's day. And I'm fearlessly, unapologetically, you know, an idiot, and I know that, but it works really <laughs> well on morning radio. I think when people are in the car in the morning. They're already in a bad mood, and and the last thing they want is just more of that negativity. So I've I've always tried to look at it and say, hey, what can I do that's going to make people feel a little better? What can I make people do that's going to be laugh? Uh, you know, how can I, it, 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 the, the, even at the detriment of myself, how can I sort of bring a little brightness into everybody's day? I think that's what a concert, when it's perfect, can do is it can take you away from everything, escape, and it can bring you back in a better place. And I think that that talk radio in general, sports talk radio particularly. Can do that too. So I, I you yeah. know, I, I've never wanted hold hold back on throwing punches, but I'm also one that wants to constantly look in it and say, "Hey, it's sports, let's laugh a little."
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's and radio. It can be very um, much of a community. People feel like they know you because there's time and space to really talk extemporaneously about life and family and everything else. Um, so there's there's a connection there if you find the right mix of people and the right audience and whatever. So I can see how that that worked for you. Are you playing music at all still?
0: Not a lot. I mean, I will at some point. I mean, nobody's ever going to stop me from, you know, getting a bottle of Crown and playing the piano at 3 in the morning. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm not, like, out there aggressively trying to play. I think at some point I'll uh, put my head around, you know, the exact type of record I want to make uh, to eventually try and get myself. I've, I've been Grammy nominated twice and never won. So i uh, i want to get myself uh, i want to get myself a Grammy somehow some way so I'll put yeah. some energy behind that, but I just don't have the energy to give that for a few years. I don't think. I think I, I think we're a little busy right now.
1: Right, for sure. Well, I wonder because it's you know it's someone who it came so naturally to you, and you know you could play by ear and and you learn all these instruments and you immediately become the band leader and and everything else, there's a creativity there that can be supplemented in some ways in our industry, but is a very different feeling. And so I would imagine at some point it might hit you that you miss that part of it and want to bring it in somehow to your life again.
0: Yeah. And I've, I've talked a lot to the ESPN music guys that are always amazing. Uh, And hopefully over time, you know, I'll be able to find my own pod voice where I can talk to some of these musicians and, and sort of have some interesting one-on-one conversations with them. So hopefully as, As all of this grows, I'll get the opportunity to to sort of flex that part of my brain, too.
1: For sure. Well, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does. It's the Spanish Inquisition. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects it. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Dance. Dance. Dance! I saw a YouTube clip of you, quote unquote, dancing.
0: You yeah, no, I to wish do... I could dance like I mean straight <laughs> yeah. up, like if I could be able to do like like Fred Astaire, like if I could move like like that type of dancer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, Justin
1: Timberlake action that would be nice. Uh, yeah, I that. saw a YouTube clip of you dancing, and you tried to do the Miami booty shake, but you were just moving your knees instead of your butt. Right, right, right. So you got to work that's on that.
0: That's a cheat. That's a cheat. Yeah, that's a <laughs> cheat. As I you
1: you got to work on that. Number two, what's your Desert Island album?
0: Oh, my God, that is incredibly difficult. Um, I know. <laughs> God, that is really difficult for me. Um, uh, Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder. Mm, good one. Just went
1: to that uh, concert that he did with just that album a couple years ago. It was awesome. Uh, oh. Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be?
0: Justin Timberlake. Mm, good one.
1: And then, just so I, then I can I'd learn be to like, dance. let's do our show in person today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever
0: been? Um, I mean, I'm really, really, really scared of heights. Like, hmm. it, just incredible scare heights. So, um, but I love roller coasters because I genuinely think I'm going to die on them. So mm-hmm. I would say that, that uh, anytime I'm like, there's been a couple of roller coasters where I thought I was going to beat myself. That's probably near the top of the list.
1: Nice. So when you come to Chicago, I'll make you come to the uh, the uh, Sears Tower now called Willis, where you can like lean against the thing and it looks like you're hovering over all the floors.
0: Yeah, why you. does anybody want to do that? Like, why, <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? And I will Nobody take a video
1: and I will spread oh, it God. to everyone. Number I mean, five, what I'll, would you... <laughs> I'll wear a diaper. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Uh, yeah. What would you consider your biggest failure?
0: Wow, my biggest failure. That's a really difficult question. I I don't you know I I don't know. I I you know um gosh my biggest failure I, yeah I, I got man that's that's tough. Um
1: It doesn't have to be something that didn't turn out okay. I think my, a lot of people's failures no, think, result in something great, but it could be something that you always wanted or thought that you would get and you couldn't I, get.
0: Yeah, I think my make. biggest failure is never getting like my, my number one moment, like, like there's a moment where I didn't move to Nashville to be a part of bands. I moved to Nashville to be like a, you know, the guy. And so I think I, I, for many years of touring, it was never enough for me because I thought it would be me making, you know, final decisions on, you know, what types of lights we're going to use and what videos and, and I'd be driving around in a Ferrari and that never happened. So I would say that that's probably my biggest thing.
1: Right. That makes sense. Uh, number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
0: Um, my positive energy for sure.
1: I think so too. I like your positive energy. Thanks. Number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
0: Uh, dancing. Hello, and lipo. <laughs> if I could get lipo, I, I want dancing and, and rock star abs.
1: Lipo. Okay. Oh yeah, because you've talked about how you're like skinny fat.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, like I want to look like I, I want to look like you know the new kids of the Backstreet Boys guys do. Like right now, I want to be able to dance and then just lift up my shirt and have, you know, 10,000 people go, wow. Like, that's what I want. You need like I would a, a,
1: like a one-week intensive with Justin Timberlake. You could accomplish all of these things.
0: <laughs> done and done. Justin, I'm in.
1: Yeah, invite me. Okay. And finally, number eight, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe
0: you? Um, three words to describe me. Um, likeable. Mm-hmm. Lighthearted. I don't know. Is, is hard-working one word?
1: Yeah, we can make, make it, it one. It word. one. Word. We can Work, make it Workaholic. One.
0: We'll say that. We'll say that one. Okay.
1: Yes. A likable, lighthearted workaholic. That's an interesting combination, but I like it. Yeah. I dig it. Um, Looking forward to getting to know you more. We might have to do podcast number two, because I have a million other questions for you about your favorite people to play with and who you never got to that you want to and all that jazz, but... Um, I think we'll do that on our show too. I think I'm going to have people, you know, we'll have a bit where people get to know you and ask you questions about life on the road because I'm sure you got some good stories.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm I'm all in for it. This is really exciting. I appreciate it. Like, this is going to be a really, really fun time. And uh, I think we're going to, we are going to flat out shock the world and kick the <laughs> button, take <tick> name. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. That's what she said.
1: So, this week's That's What She Read is more of a That's What She Heard. Um, but I was reminded of it because of Facebook's handy dandy feature where it tells you memories from, from past years. And this came up just a couple of days ago in my Facebook memories. And it was very prescient and it felt like a good time to reintroduce people to it, especially in light of the news about Jerry Richardson, some of the Me Too stuff hitting sports. And, uh, it's not specific to, um, sexual harassment in general. It is more focused. Um, on the uh, street harassment and catcalling, public touching, and it was a, a This American Life episode that originally aired in December of 2016, so last year. And I posted about it, and I told everyone that it was extremely illuminating and super useful to listen to. And what happens is this woman confronts a guy about smacking her butt in public, and has you know conversations with men about. What it means to catcall, why they're doing it, what they think they're going to get from it, you know, what the reasoning behind it, it is, what, what drives them to do it. And it is a fascinating conversation. The back and forth between some of these guys and this woman, um, is super illuminating and it's intended to bring two sides together to understand each other. It's intended to shine a light on, on the impetus behind some of these acts, not just to, um, to shame and it's worth listening to. It's, it, and you can find the transcript, um, online at This American Life. It's episode 603 once more with feeling. Um, but you can also listen to the audio. So if you go to thisamericanlife.org and you search for episode 603 once more with feeling, you can read the transcript or I highly recommend listening to the audio. Um, it's produced for the ear. It's designed to be heard and the conversation will mean more to you if you listen. So, uh, this week. It's that's what she heard instead of that's what she read. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
0: That's what she said.